That's what she said is fueled by Gatorade. Whatever path you take to greatness, Gatorade is there to fuel it. Greatness starts with G. And speaking of greatness, relive one of the greatest icons and most successful teams in sports history, Michael Jordan and the 97-98 Chicago Bulls. You can stream the Emmy and NAACP Image Award-winning series, The Last Dance on ESPN+. If you haven't watched it yet, what are you doing with your life? Go immediately. I'll even allow you to stop listening to this podcast. This is the one and only time. It's Michael Jordan, people. Go watch it. It's incredible. Don't miss Mike Greenberg, host of Greeny on ESPN Radio, providing all the action to the NBA Finals from the top analysts in the game, getting you ready for NFL training camps as well. That's Greeny on ESPN Radio weekdays from 10 a.m. to noon Eastern time, or listen to the podcast of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. Hi, I'm Lola Jones, and I am a 38-year-old virgin. Try to fix that. Good luck. Well, because you're saving yourself for marriage. So what I actually wouldn't be fixing the virginity, I have a pretty quick fix for that. I would be fixing the marriage part to get rid of the virginity. Yes, pretty much. Okay. So like I said, the virginity, that's wildly easy to fix. Like, just walk outside and walk up to pretty much any heterosexual male of a reasonably appropriate age. You'll be good. Like, you're a damn Olympian with a body that don't quit, you could be selective even about who you approach. Hottest dude in the whole damn place. Still gonna happen for you. I almost guarantee it. But I know it's not that simple. Cause you know, we gotta find your soulmate first, which is significantly more difficult than just finding someone to spend some quality adult time with, if you know what I'm saying. You know, Chelsea Handler was on this podcast. She also requested a man for her dilemma. And last I checked with her uh, by looking at her Instagram, I didn't, call her anything sadly but last i checked chelsea handler is still single and also has a body that don't quit like aside here really quick people if you are not following chelsea handler on instagram first of all she's hilarious and smart and funny but this girl's body she will go skiing downhill skiing to celebrate her birthday topless smoking a doobie with a drink in hand nothing moves just props is all i'm saying for the hard work because i know she puts in hard work she posts with her trainer she looks amazing anyway Maybe I should date Chelsea Handler. Okay, so I've failed Chelsea thus far because I've not yet found her a man. But now that I've got two gorgeous, successful women looking for love, I got to get back out on there. I got to get the matchmaking back in action. Gentlemen, if you're listening, if you or someone you know is a fine, upstanding, successful, good-looking, smart, you know, worthy person for a Lolo Jones or a Chelsea Handler, shoot your shot. Slide into those DMs respectfully please save the uh creepy pictures please uh and let's get on this i'm gonna i'm gonna take this to social media lolo we're gonna find you a soulmate uh i'd love for it to happen like a real meet cute at the at the beijing olympics next year you're you know you're pushing your bobsled you look out in the crowd see someone with dazzling eyes that catches you go see him after the race Uh, i like this i'm making a movie about this all right i'm on it i'm on it that's what she said I'm super excited for you guys to listen to this podcast and Lolo's really interesting and a fascinating person to study because of such a 
interesting, unique life that she's led from the poverty and difficulties of her youth to her incredible athleticism and how that's been received and digested and spit back out by the American people for a variety of reasons, uh, her virginity and faith, all of that. Um, but something that I thought of as, as we were talking was that it made me sad how much she's been affected by other people's opinions of her. And there's no judgment in that sadness. It's incredibly human. And I want you to think about as you're listening to this wildly successful, incredibly beautiful, charming, funny, smart person. Talk about how down she's gotten because of how other people have made her feel about her inability to to reach the highest echelon. Right. She's been to multiple Olympics in two different sports. And because she hasn't been able to get that elusive medal, because she was so close to that gold and hit that last hurdle, she instead becomes ridicule for people or people who watch reality shows and don't get what goes on behind the scenes and choose to go on social media and then attack. I want you to think about that because think about all the other people that are out that are not multi-time Olympians who are gorgeous and have perfect bodies and everything else who hurt really badly when you ridicule them, when you're hard on them, when you say things to them, when you respond even just to throw away comments with cruelty. Just remember that because as you listen to Lolo, she has every reason in the world to be able to shrug it off and look at herself and say, I'm good. And she can't always. And that's human. And if we don't recognize that in even, you know, incredible specimens like her, then we really should should recognize that there are everyday people around you that you might not be doing right by um, with the way you interact on, on social media. I think you guys will will pick that up as you listen to this. Uh, if you're not familiar, Lolo Jones, hurdler, bobsledder. Uh, she won three NCAA titles. She has 11 All-American honors when she was at LSU. Uh, she was the favorite to win the hurdles at the 2008 Beijing Olympics. She tripped on the second to last one and ended up in seventh. She also went to the 2014 Winter Olympics in the bobsled. She's uh, one of the few athletes in the world who has competed in both the summer and winter. She just won the two women bobsled world championship this February and is trying to earn a spot on the team for next year's Beijing Winter Olympics. Um, she's also been on a bunch of reality shows, Dancing with the Stars, Big Brother, MTV's The Challenge, and she has a new book about to come out. I think it actually comes out today as this pod is hitting over it, how to face life's hurdles with grit, hustle, and grace. Uh, we talked about her growing up in poverty and what she learned from her parents' reconciliation after her dad's time in prison, um, how she's dealing still with the fallout from missing out on gold in 2008, why she keeps doing the reality show appearances, why even talking about her time on MTV's The Challenge this past year makes her emotional, why it's so important to her to feel like she never quits, and you know, why at, at this age, uh, nearing 40, and after all she's been through, she's still pushing for that one last shot to medal in Beijing. Really great conversation. I hope you guys like it. That's what she said. So I think the last time I saw you in person was wearing a Red Bull-sponsored red bathing suit at a Lindsey Vaughn ESPY party well before COVID times when all of us were still out and about in the world partying. And the idea of Tokyo was still on the horizon eventually, um, potentially Beijing and the bobsled and all of that got shaken up. And I'm fascinated to talk to you, especially because in talking to athletes who are later in their careers, this feels like so much more of a disruption than other ones who have found ways to spin it to the positives of being able to train longer. Um, with your window closing, it's really made you prioritize things. And I, I want to go 
the very beginning, you have this new book out over it, and you talk very openly about your family, about the poverty you grew up in, about your father being in prison, and your mom needing to take over. And I mean, I'll, I'll just read this sentence, how, how forthright you are. You see, after dad nearly killed mom and went to prison, many of my securities were stripped away, and that's when life got really hard. Um, it feels disconnected a little bit. Are you writing in that way because at this point you have sort of separated yourself from the emotion of it? Um, or why do you think you're able to write about something so dark, um, so matter-of-factly? I think because I've had years to process this. And also it's like most people when uh, something tragic like that in their life happens, uh, you know, either they get stuck on that and there's uh, unforgiveness there with that that parent. But uh, you know, uh, what, uh, I talk about in the book is, you know, my dad came back after prison and he never touched my mom again. And they actually lived together and re reunited as a family, as a whole unit. And there was healing that was provided there. Um, and I got to know my father as a funny, just like amazing, you know, guy that just really worked hard to provide for the family at all costs. And so, although that's something that's very tragic that's happened in my life, it's it's almost like I can separate it because there was forgiveness there. And I think forgiveness is the ultimate bond that's just helped me to move forward and help my family to move forward. So um sorry if it feels feels like it's disconnected, but I guess for me it's just like uh, that's, you know, something that happened so long ago. And my dad has changed so much since then we all have. And yeah, so nothing to apologize for. I just, I find it interesting because you, you, there are so many people who deal with childhood drama in different ways. And you do have a bit of that, um, because of that reconciliation, it allows you to view things through the lens of having a relationship with him and understanding who he is beyond those moments of youth. But, um, you write about how it was a real challenge to grow up in poverty and, and I wonder when you look back as as a kid who's who's athletic and into sports and, and and all these things, what do you think the biggest effect of sort of knowing that your mom was struggling to take care of five children as a single mom, knowing that the bills were tough to pay? How do you think that affected you the most as a kid? I think it instilled a work ethic in me like no other. I mean, I would see her come home from her first job, take a small break and literally head out the door to go to another job, two jobs and like having all those kids to provide for. So, uh, you know, it made me really tough um, to be able to navigate tough situations. I'm actually really good with big stressors um, right. because, you know, I guess of my childhood. So like when big, it's almost better for big things to come at me than smaller things like traffic. It's like that probably annoys me more than if like <laughs> my whole world got flipped upside down. So it's it's the she just really uh, um, made me a tough tough person. Yeah, I you know you also had to sort of make do in ways that there's a lot of judgment around, including stuff like shoplifting to find food. When you look back now, was there ever any judgment of yourself for those things, or are you able to look back and try to process it within the larger picture of what your family was going through? I can kind of do a little bit of both. So I, you know, I can laugh at those moments like shoplifting, like really was I shoplifting in elementary school? This is crazy. And then there's <laughs> times where I walk into a store and I feel like people are looking at me like I'm about to start shoplifting because of me shoplifting so many times. I feel the judgment of like, you know, I feel like a thief when I go into stores to this day sometimes. Still, huh? Yeah, still. So, uh, yeah. So, um, a little bit of both, like where you can laugh at it and be like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. And then like, 
just hits you at the random time where you're just in a store and you're like, oh, you know, so. And you've talked in in more recent years about having concerns or always being a little bit anxious about money because of growing up that way, right? Whether that's sort of talking about the paychecks and the money you get from the reality shows you do to talking about endorsements or which events and track tend to get more money and sponsorships. Um, are you able to relax now around that topic because you've had success for a number of years or is it still kind of a stressor for you? Cause there's always a fear of going back to what you, what you had before. Yeah, it's always a stressor. And I didn't really realize this until recently where I was just, uh, you know, killing myself and trying to, you know, as athletes, we're pretty much like freelance workers because we get these sponsorships that would last either like, you know, sometimes it's one post or three months or six months or, you know, the longest sponsorship I've had was like, I think I had like a three or four year deal, but it's always uh, constantly renewal. And so I don't have that steady job, that nine to five job where I can work there as long as I want. Like as an athlete, our jobs are very unstable, unstable. So um, that definitely from my childhood is always that fear of going broke or not having enough money. And then you add on top of that, all the athletes who go broke after their career, Uh, (laughs) this is a lot of fear of, uh, financial, uh, you know, instability for sure that I've had right. to navigate. Well, and instability is sort of a, a through line in your life. So to be able to rest and not feel insecure about whether it's, it's, you know, the, the job or, or the money or all that is, is, um, not helped by the work that you do. And, and like you said, the fact that it's sort of freelance. At what point when you were a kid, did you realize that you were special when it came to, to being an athlete? It wasn't actually until I was in college that I knew that I was kind of, you know, I mean, in high school, it started to get there. But because I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa, it's not really the track Mecca. Most of the uh, like D1 colleges were recruiting from California, Texas or Florida. And so I was kind of under the radar. Um, And then when I went to LSU, who they have so many national titles in track and field, and then I was able to kind of hang with those girls, win some national titles on my own. I was like, okay, well, I might have a a chance at this, you know, kind of Olympic thing. Yeah. I mean, uh, like, you know, pretty, pretty legit 11 all American honors while at LSU. So you were hanging with them for sure. Do you, by the way, speaking of that, I was watching that LSU hype video right after the NIL announcement and you're featured in there. A lot of the great athletes. Awesome. Yeah, it's a really, I mean, it's really well done. Um, NILSU, they're really trying to let people know if you come here, you're going to be able to make some coin. Do you look back and think, damn, I I was really marketable in college. I would have had a ton of sponsorships, like the local sub shop in the New Rolling. That uh, I was just talking about that to someone, but uh, unfortunately, there was no social social media when I was in college, so I honestly would not have been able to capitalize off of it. Like now, they have college uh, student athletes that are coming out with like a million followers on TikTok before they even you know graduate. So that's they can get huge endorsements and off of ads just based on that alone. But there was no social media when I was in college. So probably wouldn't have benefited me as much as the generation now. Yeah, for sure. So you thrive at LSU and you find yourself to be um, 
you know, in the position to win at the Beijing 20, uh, 2008 Summer Olympics. We all remember watching and rooting for you. You had become a star before the Olympics, as we often find some of these um, favorites beforehand that get lots of publicity and excitement around it. And we're all settled in to watch. You're seconds away from winning gold. You clip the last hurdle. Um, and this is a pivotal moment for your life, not just as an athlete. And being a former hurdler myself, that is about the nightmare. Um, <laughs> one of my best friends in high school, my teammate was a favorite in every single, won every race, gets to the state meet and same thing, clips the last hurdle, breaks her foot, you know, has to do all the rehab before she even gets started at Duke. And it's a terrible feeling. And that little inch or less than an inch is the difference in winning the race. But instead of Instead of just being empathetic, which one would imagine you to be as someone that America was getting behind, you started out being America's sweetheart and someone people felt sorry for. But then you often talk about how much you were ridiculed for that, for not being able to achieve and get that gold. Yeah. I Are you able to explain that? I don't yeah, understand that. <laughs> I, I can absolutely explain it. So 2008 uh, was the beginning of uh uh, Twitter. So it was just starting. It was like a baby and people really didn't know how to navigate the, that social media. It was barely out there. Um, social media wasn't in existence. Uh, essentially, there was no Instagram in 2008. So uh, when I competed, people saw me on TV and you, granted, granted, I handled that situation with about as much uh, grace as God could give me <laughs> in that moment. <laughs> and America fell in love with me. Well, the problem that happened is in 2012, now you have Twitter and Instagram and people have been using social media for quite a while. And uh, news articles are now realizing that uh, those happy uh, titles and articles, uh, that's not clickbait. What's, mm. what's going to get you more clicks is the, you know, the sensationalized, uh, causing drama, stirring tea, and so, and then, you know, people have been on social media now longer. They've been actually ruder on social media, more keen to say what they want to say that they wouldn't say to someone in public. And that is essentially uh, a mixture of those both worlds, uh, kind of is what flipped the script on everything. And then I had some bad press and, you know, people just picked up on that and kept using the same recycled article right. instead of actually interviewing me, pitted my teammates against me. Um, it was a nightmare. So uh, I went from America's Sweetheart. And then two years later, I was like some villain for getting fourth at the Olympics. Like I had people right. screaming at me to give my sponsorships back. It's like, that's how I like, that's how I fund myself to train for the Olympics. Like it was, it was unheard of to, to give your sponsorships back after being fourth best in the world in a race that was the fastest Olympic race in history that would have got me an Olympic medal in any Olympics to this day. Uh, it just blows my mind. And so I've had so much negativity over my career. It's just, it has honestly uh, mentally broken me at times. Yeah, I mean, what's what's unfortunate and persistent is the idea that there is a game that has to be played, particularly by attractive women. And the game can get you to the highest heights, but people will also turn on you for the very same things that they will tell you to play up and to promote in order to make the money or get the opportunities that are usually denied women. And so that pitting against you, your own teammates, comes from a desire to stir drama, comes from a desire to pit people against each other in terms of who's deserving and who's not. You know, one of the most notable was a really terrible New York Times 
uh, story that tried to paint you as sort of attention seeking and vapid and fake that you were simultaneously talking about your your faith and your virginity while also trying to play the part of a vixen, um, which oftentimes is just men projecting onto you what you make them feel not something you're actually doing, but you are beautiful. And that was always a part of the coverage of you, not by even your choice, but by the way the world likes to siphon off and silo women into whatever role they view them as. And I wonder how comfortable or uncomfortable you were when you had to become more than just the athlete that shows up at the track every day and works, but instead has to contemplate this brand image or what you want people to see you as or what brands you align yourself with did it go wrong only once Twitter and other places took it to a bad place? Or was that always something that you struggled to kind of feel comfortable with? Um, I've been comfortable with media. What's the problem? Uh, you know, usually I'm able to navigate that uh, well, unless it's like one of the New York Times article where it's just like, uh, that was just a complete on attack on me. Uh, social media sometimes where things get lost in translation. Uh, so, and I think everybody struggles with social media at times because the uh, the, like the climate and social media can change in a minute. Like something that is kosher to say in one moment can overnight be totally unacceptable. And so, um, I, I find myself lately just getting really uh, like stressed to, you know, wanting to update my fans on my progress and the Olympic training. Uh, but also it's just like, man, social media, it's just the the climate. It just, it brings me a lot of anxiety sometimes. So I have to take breaks to kind of make sure that mentally I can stay sound and, and have peace on this journey because I can get attacked at any moment on social media. Like I, I could say the most peaceful thing. I I could post a Bible verse and get a ton of backlash just for that. So, uh, social media has has probably been the hardest uh, waters to navigate. You were actually diagnosed with PTSD after the 2008 Olympics because not only was it heartbreaking for you to be so close, but then people's reactions to it and almost reveling in the pain that it caused you to try to to reconcile that very close moment of of being the best and not quite getting there. Um, And you talked about in the HBO documentary, The Weight of Gold, um, experiencing sort of passive suicidal thoughts. So not wanting to hurt yourself, but maybe something bad might happen to you. Um, you know, the idea of of being one of the best ever at something and the difference between that one hurdle being, being all the happiness you've sought and, and then this, which is such a dark opposite, are you able to try to find perspective there in the fact that that gold medal is not the actual journey itself? It's just a thing that you can point to on that journey? I think I found a, a ton of perspective. The problem is, is I continue to get ripped apart for just my effort. And that's what I'm most proud about is I will have people call me a flop, a failure, uh, you know, a disrespect to Team USA. And if anything, I've showed over my career, if you mess up to get back up, to keep fighting, like most people only can make one Olympic team and I've made three against the odds. So I look back and okay, I don't have an Olympic medal, but man, I'm dang proud of just my fight and my effort. But then you'll go on, uh, you know, an interview or check your social media and people are calling you a flop for <laughs> doing something that yeah. overcome extreme odds. And so that's when it can get frustrating and you get so many attacks of those per day, it just can start to weigh down your spirits. And so uh, then you start to like, you know, 
you know, rethink things, what you start to relive things and it can be quite difficult. You write in your book about that, um, or actually it was from your Instagram, but you repeat it in your book. Everyone loses. Everyone comes up short. Winners are talented, but most winners are just losers that never gave up. First of all, I love that concept because one of the things I talk about as an athlete and, and with other athletes is the idea that there are people who go through life who fail at something and that's it. They're done. And if you're an athlete, you get used to being denied not scoring the goal, not winning the race and having to come right back and work just as hard, if not harder to do it again. And that's a lesson for everybody in life to apply to everything. And it's a, it's such a gift to athletes to learn that at a young age and be able to be perseverant in everything that you do. So you're right. It's not something to be critical of. It actually reminds me of, of Tim Tebow and the Jaguars and him, you know, getting a shot from Urban Meyer. And I was critical of Urban Meyer and the people who decided to give him a spot when he hasn't been in the NFL for that long, when he's never played the position. I was never critical of Tim Tebow. Who am I to tell someone to stop dreaming? Like this is someone who wants to know for sure. They put everything out there. They did everything they could. And then it was over. And then when it's over, you don't ever wonder what if, and it feels like to me, that's what you've been doing at every turn. And that's admirable. Well, I appreciate that. And yeah, you're right. Uh, You're the first person I've heard that's actually put, uh, the blame on Urban Myers and not Tim Tebow. Right. Else, when they found out the news, directly started to attack Tim Tebow, and it's like the man's just trying to fight for his dream. He's he's just trying to finish how he wants to finish as much as he can. So, uh, absolutely agree with that, and that's essentially what's happened over my career. Uh, is I've just been attacked for just trying. Like they're like, you should retire already. You should give it up. You're it's never going to happen. It's like, don't you want to see it happen though? Like, don't you want, (laughs) wouldn't that be cool? (laughs) Yeah. Like, wouldn't it give you hope that, you know, one failure doesn't make you two doesn't break you three keep trying. So, uh, but yeah, but that's not what society lately society likes to chirp on those failures. So, um, yeah, interesting take. We'll get right back to the interview, but first What's your favorite word? Persistence. Persistence. It seems very fitting with all the things we've been talking about today and your desire to stick with it. 1540s is when that first came around from the French and Latin, meaning steady or firm adherence to or a continuance in a state course of action or pursuit that's been entered upon. It's a great, great word. Speaking of great words. You're going to learn today. The word of the week is supercilious. Behaving or looking as though one thinks one is superior to others. Coolly or patronizingly haughty. Haughtily disdainful or contemptuous as a person or a facial expression. Now that last bit matters and it's why I chose this word because I love the origin. It originated in the 1520s from the Latin superciliosis, haughty or arrogant, from supercilium, literally super above cilium eyelid eyebrow supercilium eyebrow like the sort of notion of raising the eyebrow to express your haughtiness it's that face you make eyebrows up looking down your nose you don't even know it but you probably just did that as you were listening to this you just made that face right now the eyebrows up sort of looking down your nose haughtily disdainfully I just love super above cilius, cilium, eyelid. Above the eyelid is your eyebrow. And that description is what your face looks like when you're being supercilious. So in a sentence, 
the supercilious maitre d' of Shea Key leveled a snooty, no, snotty, gaze at Ferris Bueller, questioning whether the young teen could really be Abe Froman, the sausage king of Chicago. Now let's get back to the interview. You've always been very outspoken. Um, Obviously, the topic of your virginity and your faith becomes a big talking point in the media that's both positive and negative, depending on the person writing or talking about it. Um, How much do you think that I mean, you keep coming back to the idea of the negativity around you. And I know that a lot of that's social media, but it's also stories that are written that are, take a totally different tone than a lot of what we see for other Olympians. How much do you think that that negativity stems from you not speaking in cliches, not saying what people want to hear, and also being so open about something like virginity that some people think is either fake or fraudulent or TMI or any number of things? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So that I've thought about that. It's so, you know, they want athletes to, to be different, outspoken. They want to get to know us. And then the moment we do, it's like, ah, you know, Mm -hmm. so then there's the athletes, you know, there are athletes out there that say the boring things that just, you know, they post on their Instagram and they're just going to use a quote from someone's, you know, general quote, daily uh, calendar of, uh, hanging from a tree hanging there (laughs) the athletes that don't post you know and they don't get criticized as as much as a person who's just them so it is a balance like i i know by posting and and trying to be as real and honest with people that it's definitely going to open me up to more criticism and so when sometimes when it just gets overwhelming i just i have to take a break because you know it it will shut me down completely sometimes so you have talked in the past about, um, you know, the criticism of getting fourth in 2012, of getting so close and not feeling supported in that effort. Um, and it's resulted in you continuing to push to compete. So, you know, you want to come back, you, you find and discover um, that, that the bobsled might be a chance for you. And you've actually talked about what we all hoped, which was you were watching Cool Runnings and you were like, hey, this could be good, which I just love that. Not You've obviously heard about it and seen it in other places, but that being the kind of trigger point for you is so cool. So you make the Olympics in 2014. You're one of the few athletes in the world who's competed in the summer and winter Olympics. When you got there, did you feel like as a bobsledder, you carried with you all of the shit from the track? Or did you feel like perhaps you could have a fresh start in the Winter Olympics and in a different sport? So when I first came to Bobsled, I was like, I will absolutely have a fresh start. And within months, I realized that that was not going to happen. And my teammates, uh, when my new teammates hated me coming from track, hated the attention I brought to the sport, I was, uh, yeah, just thrown back, if not into the fire, a more heated fire because they basically used all the, the crap from the Summer Olympics, all the articles, and then just used that as, uh, you know, a platform to just build hate against me. So I, I, ha- I worked many, many months and years to knock down those walls and stigmas that they had about me before even meeting me. Um, so it, it affected me on, uh, uh, competitions, teams, making teams, uh, you know, it's just being judged before people even know you because of articles they've read is a very hard, uh, wall to break down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, in, in some ways I can't blame that initial response because if you've spent your whole life working toward a sport and somebody else who is 
achieved greatly elsewhere walks in it's again tebow you and tebow man it's too bad he's spoken for um uh you know he did the same thing with baseball and a lot of people are going to be critical of that even though there's clearly an incredible athleticism that's required to cross over but if someone's only done that and feels like maybe you're getting preferential treatment or something or they assume that there's something more than just hard work there they're gonna they're gonna maybe be critical do you do you find any part of yourself to blame for that? Was there anything about your approach that you can look back and say I would have done that differently? No. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing I could have done. I, I mean, I'll give you an example. I remember I first came to bobsled and they had uh, like a competition uh, and like it's outside. So uh, and their track is like next to a parking lot. And so I, I it's a long competition. So I just I just sat on like the concrete and they were like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe Lolo sat on the concrete. And I was just like do they not know me? Like I'm a track athlete. I sit on the track all the time. We warm right. up in grass. We warm up in the dirt. Like where, what do they, do they think but I'm, they thought you were like a diva that you were going to have like a throne rolled around to yeah, sit on during the like, Yeah. That I, I, I don't know what they thought, but like to even hear that feedback, I knew that I was going to be uh, in a lot of trouble with the sport because if they thought that I was too posh to sit on the ground and watch the competition, <laughs> uh, I had a lot of going against me. Walking right. You knew that they had a lot of expectations beforehand. So you compete in the bobsled. Um, you are still with your mind and your eye set on, on, on the track. And let's fast forward a little because I want to get to some more recent stuff. And I know um, when the Olympics were finally postponed last year, and that was really late, there were so many other things that had already been called. And they really held on to the idea that they could pull it off in Tokyo. When they finally did, you had a hilarious response. First, you said, you're just going to eat all the pizza because you had another year before you had to compete. And then also with the uh, Steve Buscemi meme, the how do you do fellow kids, uh, knowing that the older you got, the more you'd be looking around to see um, younger competitors. Um, you you praised the decision did you feel in that moment truly happy about the the postponement or was that your way of trying to reconcile and tell yourself it was going to be okay despite some serious disappointment about the timing and the postponement? Well, I actually felt really relieved because I was having like a nagging knee injury. I was running races, but, and I was healthy at the time, but I needed more time. I needed more races. So I was like, Oh, this is perfect. I'll get like a whole nother year of races. Well, I wasn't thinking because uh, once they postponed the, they didn't tell us originally when they were going to postpone the Olympics. So we thought it was going to be like, uh, like a few months or so. Like we didn't think it was going to be a whole nother year. Like, uh, and so once that happened and I, then I had already started transitioning back to bobsled. I was like, Oh my God, I will not be able to do both because, uh, bobsled qualifies the same time the summer Olympics are going on. And so I basically had to figure out, okay, which one do I have a better chance of making the team in? Which one do I have a better chance to get an Olympic medal in? And you can't, you can't determine that the Olympics, anything happens at the Olympics. I was the number one hurdle in the world and lost the Olympic gold medal. So it's like trying to predict your future and you can't. And so I had so many calls with, the bobsled coach, the track coach, my friends, my family, like, you know, well, what would it mean to win a medal in the summer Olympics versus the winter Olympics? Like trying to go over all these fake scenarios. It's just, it was, it was really hard. Well, and you missed out on Rio because of a hamstring injury. So yeah. to have to approach Tokyo wondering if a nagging knee injury was going to cause the same fate, there is a sense of relief to push it back until you realize now everything's running into each other. Well, it was healthy. I was I was running healthy. I was pain-free. I just needed more races because I Got had it. time off from the injury. I needed rhythm. I need A hurdler needs rhythm. And so I was 
having races, but when they shut down all the races because of COVID, I I was like, okay, well, this will give me more time to get those races when they start right. back up. So well, and I I heard an interview with you talking about your coach finally was like, all right, we got to go to smaller and smaller venues, and eventually it was just workout at home, and you're like cool. I'll just jump like, over my couch. Yeah. I it was <laughs> like when the pandemic hit and we were trying to find competitions and work out, it was like an exterminator trying to like weed out cockroaches. It's like at first we were all over the place and then we like small started going to like smaller and smaller rooms until it's like basically there was nothing. Yeah. I mean, it was wild. Some of the videos you would see of like swimmers doing laps in their bathtub or like finding ways to turn in like an, an above ground pool into a workout. I mean, it was, it was incredible. And, and so, so you, you, in the meantime, we'll, we'll get to the bobsled cause great news on that front uh, early this year, but um, you've done a lot of reality shows in the past. Um, you've done Dancing with the Stars and Celebrity Big Brother. You end up on the challenge uh, this last season. Um, how did you decide that that was something you wanted to do? And also like in terms of your training and everything, how did you balance that? Well, when I decided to do that show, it's because again, everything was shut down. So they had announced the Olympics would be a whole nother year away. So I had no competitions, no way to earn money. Uh, Bob said they were like, we don't know what's going on. We probably won't have a season. It's not looking good. And so everything was shut down. I literally, it was the first time in my life I had, you know, no way to compete. And you have to understand I was in shape to compete for the Olympic trials, the summer games. Like I was really, really fit. And so I'm like sitting at home. I haven't seen a person for a month. I'm starting to lose <laughs> my mind. And I was just like, all right, like, you know, the challenge is happening. They're actually going to do something. And yeah, it's a reality show, uh, but they compete on the show. So I was just like, I don't care if it's like an eating competition at this point. <laughs> and something, I have all this built up energy because, you know, the Olympics were taken away. So that's what that was my decision to compete on that show. So I I do not watch the challenge. I admit. So I outsourced Good, my don't watch it. <laughs> I outsourced my challenge questions to my friend Joanna, who embarrassingly admitted that she was in a challenge fantasy league. So I guess people get really into it. So her two questions were um, recognizing, you know, that all the players have tension with their partners. And when you're competing, there's always going to be some butting of heads. Do you feel like you were too competitive for an MTV show or no, do you just have sort of like only one way to go? No, I don't feel like I was too, too competitive. I feel like MTV is going to show you what they want to show. And if they want to edit you in a bad way, they'll edit you in a bad way. Isn't so. that what reality people always say though? Uh, not always. I mean, I've been, <laughs> on, I've been on other shows and you know, it's yeah, but yeah, but I've been on live shows. I've been on right. live reality shows. So I've been on Big Brother, which is live. Dancing with the Stars, which is live. Uh, so the challenge is taped, it's edited, and it does not come out for months until after the fact. Right. So you don't feel like you were acting any differently than anyone else or that you were acting in a bad way that wasn't in fitting with the competition. It was just a matter of let's make her the ultra competitive one. Yeah, I think it was good for their their shows. I mean, they needed they want I was their first Olympic athlete. And so they wanted to make sure that they chimed in on that. And, you know, so they kept talking about certain things of that and the other castmates were getting frustrated by that. Like we get she's an Olympian. It's just like, right. MTV hired me. This is easy talking point for them. Easy talking point yeah. to like so rile I'm, them up about it. Yeah. I'm so sorry that they keep announcing me as an Olympic athlete. <laughs> and I'm so sorry that that hurts your feelings. So, but am I a competitive person? I'm absolutely a competitive person. But 
when a TV show tries to make you seem like you're not a good teammate and you work mm. with Team USA on a regular basis, when uh, uh, MTV The Challenge tried to make me look like a quitter and I've never quit anything in my life, that's what's frustrating because it should show the fans the power of editing. It should show the fans the power of reality TV. Uh, I literally lost the Olympics in front of millions of people and I had TJ Lavin, who's the MTV Challenge host, try to say, I don't know how to lose. <laughs> what the hell do you mean? I don't know. How to <laughs> I lost an Olympic gold medal, waited to congratulate the girls who got gold, silver and bronze. You tell me I don't know how to lose. I, I mean, I'm telling you like that show. I literally if uh, people watch that show, I honestly say good luck and believe in fantasy because yeah. I, the way it tries to rip people apart as much focus as there is on mental health, MTV should definitely do a better job of making sure that they don't try to rip their castmates apart uh, and break them down. Because I just think it's it's uh, what they did to me and the legacy I've created in the Olympic world to try to pit me as a quitter and as a bad sportsman when I've literally MT or uh, the Olympics has shown my shown my post-race Olympic loss to other athletes on how to lose Hmm. shame shame on MTV like shame on them and shame on viewers for attacking me for how MTV edited me shame on viewers for coming at me to this day they think I quit that show when MTV producers pulled me aside and forced me to quit that show so in all honesty I would love it if we not talk about that show yeah it's well, you've talked about that. You've said that the show portrayed your exit differently than what you actually did, that you didn't quit. And I can see you getting emotional. And I don't blame you because one of the things that we've done in recent years that I think has been really powerful is going back and trying to look at the ways magazines like Us Weekly or TV shows on E! would portray Hollywood people and try to literally chase them down with paparazzi to catch them in a bad moment or to make them, you know, look bad. And we, we never really acknowledged and addressed what we were doing to human beings. And I think that that moment has not yet come for reality TV in the ways that it should. Everybody knows that there's some editing. Everybody knows that there's manipulation, but the extent of it is not known by the average person. And what that leaves people with, including you who now have moronic fans messaging you and attacking you. Telling me I'm a quitter. Telling me I never quit anything in my life. And MTV letting them do that is shame on them. Like seriously shame on them. People's mental health is so much more important to attack me. And I've, and I've, I've already suffered with PSTD, PSTD, TD, passive passive suicidal thoughts. Like they should have told people what actually went down. And instead they try to just let me hang out to drive. They let castmates talk about me and they didn't even tell the castmates. So the castmates had no clue. So what I, I was trying to tell one of my close friends on the show what happened and I was like, look, I'm getting pulled aside. They're telling me to pack up my stuff. And they were telling me like MTV's like, don't, you can't say anything to anybody. Mm. Like it was, it was a nightmare. And so shame on the fans who call me a quitter, shame on MTV, shame on anybody who believes that nonsense because, and essentially you're helping contribute to, to mental health uh, and attacking someone then you don't know the full, the truth. Yeah. It's like these people want to be judge, jury, and all that without any evidence. They watch the the reality TV show and they want, oh, like this is what happened. They're not in the house. They have none of the evidence. So it's just very frustrating. 
Well, and it's really hard too if you've done other shows that haven't been like that to feel like you trusted the wrong people or that they didn't portray things. And as someone who is on social media, I, I often tell people the thing that makes me the most upset is not when someone's just mean to me. It's when I feel misunderstood or misrepresented. So I understand that for you as someone who is all about perseverance to have a narrative around you of being a quitter or to feel like they manipulated everything. Well, to yeah, I mean, I That's a big deal. Yeah, I was fine with the show. Like they showed me getting mad at my, you know, competition. I, I laughed at that. I was just like, what athlete hasn't, you know, right. gotten furious? When I lost respect was when they tried to portray the, the quitter thing and they had the castmates come against me because yeah. uh, a lot of people don't realize this. Those castmates are trying to get booked for another season. Right. So they will do and say whatever they can. Because that's, that's why their, I stopped watching a lot of that their, stuff. That's because I was only, like, yeah, so only yeah, it's like throw a table, start a fight, be the person everybody knows your name, and then you get booked again. Yeah. And then it's not, it's really not reality anymore. It's performative in order to get that next thing. I don't, I'm not interested in watching people be performative. Well, yeah, the only interesting part of reality is really getting an eye into reality, which it really isn't anymore on so many of those shows. Yeah, it was bad. Like a lot of them would have these storylines they would try to create before they even got on. Oh boy. Challenge. Like trying to like, let's do this, like, let's do that. And like when I was on Dancing with the Stars and Big Brother, it wasn't that. It was just like, this is, hey, we're here, like, it's day by day, and they're all just trying to get rebooked for the next show, so. So do you think you won't do any more reality TV because of the challenge? Did it kind of scare you off? No, the challenge doesn't scare me off. Uh, I feel disgusted by what the challenge does to not only its castmates, uh, and I hate the some of the way the fans react to it, uh, but nothing scares me off. Nothing intimidates me. I'm a bobsled athlete. I go down an ice track at 90 miles an hour with no seatbelt, but, uh, I just think that, uh, I won't go on shows that don't respect strong female competitors. I won't go on shows that try to peg people as quitters and, uh, try to hide the truth. And so, uh, yeah, there's great shows out there that, you know, there's Survivor, there's Amazing Race. Those are great reality shows that do show emotional sides. They show fights right. on the show. But do they try to, like, destroy someone's character or make up a whole uh, assassination attempt on, attempt on them? No. So let's talk about the bobsled. You mentioned it again. You won the two-woman bobsled world championships in February with your teammate, Callie Humphreys, who uh, is a really successful bobsledder for the Canadian team until there's a falling out with the Federation. She is married to an American man and was able to petition and be put on to Team USA. So you guys earned a spot for the Beijing Olympics. Congratulations. Well, no, she earned a spot. She earned a spot. So you don't get it with her. No, I have to requalify my position. So Wow. Why is that? Because, because of her pre-existing times well, or effort? They they allow the pilots to qualify first. And then once the pilots are qualified, then they can focus on which brakemen that they will put with the pilots. So that's where we're in the process of now. In two weeks, we will start our competitions to kind of show the pilots our strengths. And then we'll start wow. being paired up with them. But yeah, she's qualified. I am not, I won't find out if I've made the Olympic team until January. Oh my gosh. So you've got a long stretch ahead of you of training and working and competing. Do you have a, you know, a select number of athletes that are kind of your biggest competition for that? 
Uh, well, yeah, we have two returning Olympic medalists uh, for the position. And then we have uh, like a slew of other girls that will compete for a spot. So, but it's anybody's game. I mean, it's the Olympics. It's the Olympic year. Uh, I've seen people who were really good lose their edge and then, you know, people come out of nowhere. So I'm just looking forward uh, to stepping up and doing things in the sport I haven't done before. So. So what's an average day look like right now as you're training to start those big competitions to prove yourself? Right now I wake up uh, probably like eight, have breakfast uh, and then head to the ice house to push uh, like a fake bobsled on ice and then weights and then treatment and uh, another workout. It's just, it's just. (laughs) Bobsled is life. Bobsled is life. Yeah. It's like eat, sleep, train, eat, sleep, train, just redo that. It's, it's really boring actually. Where are you training out of? Uh, I'm currently right now in Lake Placid, New York at the Olympic Training Center. Is your dog Loki? It's Loki, right? Yeah, he's not here. He actually was cleared to be here, but my sister was like, just, she basically stole him from me. So (laughs) yeah, that sounds like a story for another time. Um, when you do have some time off from the training, um, are you, are you binge watching anything or do you like it to settle in at night and relax? Um, I was binge watching, um, I don't even know how to say it cause it's, uh, they definitely filmed it in Europe somewhere, Rankovich or something. It's like the Thor on Netflix. I do not know how to say it. Rank- okay. I don't know. It's in, I have no clue how to say it, but basically it's like Thor as a teenager and his brother Loki and all that. But, uh, right now I'm only watching like feel good movies, uh, like really cheesy, mm-hmm. like feel good rom-coms, uh, because the more stressed out I get, because we have this big competition coming up, I like to watch less action movies and more just calm. I'm completely with you. I've been like that for the entirety of COVID. I've just been watching either old shows that I used to love and I'm watching them again, or like Top Chef, Project Runway kind of things, Ted Lasso, all the fun stuff. Like, I don't want to watch anything too serious. There's enough of that. Yeah, like even Below Deck is too stressful for me. That's, <laughs> that's, like, that's usually one of my binges, but like it's like too stressful because people yeah. start fighting and stuff. I'm just like, right. like I need my, to um, my friend who uh, used to work with me here at ESPN, Jamel Hill, was on Below Deck. She oh, yeah, like, her. yeah, she, yeah, she did a, uh, she did her bachelorette party on the boat, and I was, I was like, I can't believe you made me watch two full episodes of Below Deck just to yeah, see. Yeah, but you. they kind of made her look spicy, though. That's what I don't like. They, about they tried, and then at the end, they were like, "Never mind." I was like, "You couldn't find any drama because she's too awesome." They were like, "Let's manufacture some drama with the penis cake, and then her yeah. being a diva." And then they were but like, they "Just did. kidding, they, she was really they nice." Tried to make her look spicy. Yeah. That's what that's what I'm it saying. It didn't work. Reality mm-hmm. shows they will try to make you look spicy. I'm all for making you look spicy, but character assassination is yeah. Not- yeah, I, I would. Yeah, I am. Um, I'm not a below deck person. I was like, Jamal, I can't believe you made me made me watch that. Um, so when w- what is this big event that's coming up so we can all keep our eye out for it? Uh, it's USA Bobsled Push Championships. It's actually just an in-house competition. I don't even know if they will stream it live, uh, but our season starts in around October. Um, and then I will be updating my social media on ways for people to watch bobsled competitions. Awesome. And then the final announcement will come in January and that's based on a collection of uh, competitions. Correct. That's hard too. Cause then it's subjective. It's not like I put together oh, the best time. Oh, trust. I wrote, about, oh, that. So I wrote stressful. about that. I wrote about that in my book, but I just basically said political, like the last Olympic team I probably should have made, but 
subjective. So, I mean, I got, I had the, uh, I was the only girl to win a gold medal that year, the whole season, had the best velocities, got second at push championships, and they picked someone who got third, no gold mm-hmm. medal. So yeah, it is very subjective. So it does, it's, it's like trying to make a gymnastics team, yeah, you know, figure skating competition, you know, where they judge the points at the end. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> does the, me. um, does the uh, pilot get to choose their preferred partner? Yes, they have a say so, uh, but they do not a hundred percent determine uh, if someone's on the team. So it's a, there's a whole selection committee of people that will vote and they will talk about it and so they're blue in the face and then pick the team. Yeah. Well, uh, good luck to you. I'm sure we're well, not all of us. Some of us are haters, but a lot of us are rooting for you to find success. And I think it'd be a great story. And to your point, I think there's nothing that we should rally around more than someone who continues to face adversity and keeps trying and keeps going after that dream. Um, especially older folks, right? We gotta we gotta root for the for the older athletes and not let it be all you know, sixteen and eighteen year olds living you. living out the dream. Older. Yeah, it's really hard. Yeah, you gotta take on the uh, Diana Taurasi. Old people have dreams too. what she said (laughs) um before i let you go i have to have you do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects didn't expect a kind of spanish inquisition (laughs) nobody expects the spanish inquisition it's the spanish inquisition number one your current careers all of your careers reality shows bobsled track athlete are all canceled what job would you do uh, can I be like a stay-at-home mom? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Are you going to have some kids for that or just like be a stay-at-home mom to your dog? <laughs> I know. I Well, I'd hope to have kids, but yeah. I okay. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. Number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Oh, uh, uh, I guess one time in a bobsled crash where I felt like my skin was burning. Ooh, ouch. Uh, number three, you could be the best in the world at one thing for one day. What is it? I mean, I, uh, just an athlete at any Olympics would do. Yeah, it's just like sometime I wanted to align on the day. Where, I'm going to go bobsled on, on the day of the competition in Beijing. That's what we're okay. going to go for. Okay. Nice. Um, what current celebrity from music or TV, sports, politics, would you most want to be your best friend? Uh, I don't know. The Rock seems pretty genuine, genuine, right? Yeah, he seems pretty cool. That'd be a good one. Also, always good to have for backup at any given moment backup, if something goes wrong. Backup, <laughs> good workout partner. Yeah, money so he could probably pay for all like the activities or whatever. Right. Always picks up the check. Yeah, for sure. Good choice. Good choice. <laughs> uh, number five. What's your biggest, most meaningless pet peeve? Uh, my pet peeve. Oh, I guess people who take a really, really long time to turn uh, right onto like, you know, if they're getting off the street and it's like a very slow, slow (laughs) turn. Uh, Number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Uh, I don't know. I've uh, uh, embarrassed. I mean, I don't know. I, so I've been many times embarrassed. I don't know the most time embarrassed. I have no clue. That's a hard one. I mean, <laughs> do I don't you get know. easily embarrassed? I guess I do, but it's just like I shake it off fast right. in the moment, so, and then you're over it. Yeah, there's none I'm that is like standing, staying with you for life when you like peed your pants in school or something. 
No, I, I mean, I guess it's not, I don't know if it's the most embarrassing, but I, I can remember like uh, they were like hitting a hurdle before the race started. And it was like, I had blood all over my knee and oh. trying to shake that off and race two seconds later, like, and you know, the crowd's That's like, a tough one. To, yeah, that was tough. So I'll take <laughs> that over. The, at least in the 2008 race, I was like at the Olympics, I finished the race. This one was like, it was just like, I don't know. It was just awkward oh. timing happened brutal brutal uh number seven what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve um it would be nice if i was more patient for sure on some things calm cal- if i could be a calm person not patient calm if i could be a calm person that would be awesome oh. but then i don't think people would know my personality then so yeah it's, it's who you are uh number eight any musician or band alive or dead can play your next party who is it oh I mean, I feel like Rihanna, but she hasn't put out music in like five years. So she could just rock the old stuff, though. She could just yeah. do the, the old stuff. Uh, number nine, what would you consider your biggest failure? Uh, whatever I say, 08. So I guess 08. I mean, it's like I, I could have been done with this whole Olympic thing if I won a medal. <laughs> it's not about that, though, right? I mean, it is about the medal, but you still would have been competing if you'd won. Uh, yeah, maybe. Who knows? Really? I'm I don't know about now. I probably would have. You might have been satisfied. Yeah, I probably like maybe a few years ago retired or something. Like maybe after after London or something. But yeah. So yeah. Uh, number ten. What three individual words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Funny. Uh, honest. Real. I mean, that's the same as real. Yeah. And, and uh, dang. Hmm. I don't know. Interesting. Interesting. I don't know. One word, not a quitter. <laughs> oh yeah. Not a quitter. That would be bad. Yeah. We'll give, we'll, we'll give, we'll give it to you as one word. Cause I don't think there is a one specific word that means the opposite of quitter, I guess, winner or persevere or yeah. one of those. Uh, final question for you. Who should I have on this podcast? They can be from any background, any industry. Who's just someone I would find interesting to talk to. Oh, uh, um, I mean, Michael Phelps has been really open about like mental health and stuff lately. So, and I, th- I think he's working on a book as well, but uh, it's he not, is. yeah, good, good, good idea actually. Cause he might be doing some press for that. Hey, it was really nice talking to you. And, um, you know, my opinion means nothing, but as someone who's gotten a lot of shit on social media, you know, keep your head up and feel free to just step away for long stretches. Those people don't deserve any time in your head. And they're probably just very dissatisfied with their own lives and jealous of your success. And so the way they make themselves feel better is to attack you. They don't have any actual power. Yeah, true. Nice people, people who are happy, people who are successful are not sitting on the internet being mean to other people. They're trying to uplift people and bring them along with their success. So I just tend to feel sorry for them instead of being mad. I tend to think I feel sad for you that you're unhappy and unsuccessful and that this is what you have to do to make yourself feel better. And then it makes me less sad about myself. Awesome. (laughs) I like that. All right. Good luck. We'll be uh, keeping an eye out for you uh, and hoping for your success. Thank you so much for your time. Bye. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. So uh, this is a place for rants and raves, everything in between, sometimes a story to read or something to listen to. And this time it is a fantastic satirical piece on McSweeney's called Nobody Wants to Be a Surf Anymore. And I'll read you just a bit of the opening. It starts with a quote from the July 9 of this year issue of the Wall Street Journal. 
Job openings are at record highs. Why aren't Americans filling them? The headline from the Wall Street Journal. And it starts, my good lords, I must bring to your attention a grave issue that requires our utmost concern. You see, my fellow landowning gentry, it seems that the invention of mechanized industry, the rise of capitalism, and the impact of the recent plague has brought upon us a wave of moral degradation and irredeemable sloth. Specifically, nobody wants to be a serf anymore. This newfound modicum of control the peasant class has over their lives has brought us to a dark new reality in which the serfs have become so lazy that they'll no longer toil without pay on land they do not own yet can never leave and instead leech upon the system by searching out more equitable work. Surely you are already aghast, but I fear the problem does not stop there, my good rich sirs. Be sure to be seated upon your golden chairs for this next bit of news. Not only do our current serfs refuse to labor, but the serfs we ejected from our fiefdoms when we feared the plague would harm our profits now don't want to come back and replace the workers we kept who then subsequently died of the plague. Did they not know that we banished them with the expectation they'd come crawling back at our earliest convenience? What has the world come to when the whims of noblemen no longer control the lives of the masses? And it's not just the serfs who have left. Now that we have fewer laborers, we've required our remaining peasants to work longer hours without recompense. But the villains refuse. They demand something called overtime. Apparently, they now think their time belongs to them. And if we use too much of it, we should pay them for it. There's no way to describe this phenomenon other than plain moral rot. How else would you? Social progress? Don't make me guffaw. And it goes on perfectly, tellingly, creatively and sadly to reflect our current times. I think one of the words that uh, pretty much sums it all up is uh, how can they value their lives so much when we've always valued them so little? Check it out. It's on McSweeney's. The headline is nobody wants to be a surf anymore. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you've got guest suggestions, questions or more, and you should always Go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, rate it five stars, please, and give a review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's What She Said 